What would you say is the is a prime motivation in the life of a man and for heads of households it often is um, to make money, to put food on the table uh, and a roof over your family's head. You need to make money to buy clothes obviously and gas for your car, for the car itself. Yes, money is a prime motivation in the life of a man. Others might say family is their prime motivation. Finding a wife to make a future with, having children and then grandchildren, which many of us here have. Having that progeny to fill your life and give it fuller meaning. But, you know, perhaps the biggest motivation in the life of a man, and I'm not saying it's, it's a correct one, is is a quest for a certain amount of immortality. And uh, by that I don't mean that we want to live on this earth and never grow old, although it appears that some of our so-called elite in the tech world uh, do indeed want to do that and are trying to bring that to, in, uh, to actuality, but instead that some part of us, some memory of us, will live on after we have died. In that way, our own immortality does involve the making of money that we will pass along to our heirs at some point. Um, it does involve a desire for family, that your children will be some part of you left behind when you do die, that they will live on after your death. We live in a time right now that is obsessed with celebrities from movie stars to internet influencers gosh that's something I wanted to be when I grew up but never mind uh, to politicians uh, uh, which uh, have been called you know uh, show business for ugly people uh, but the fame of a man is fleeting you know the the imp the what you are in this life will really not outlive you. The famous actors of today, I was just reading of this, most of them will be forgotten in their lifetimes, meaning they will have a certain amount of time of fame. The Brad Pitts and the Leonardo DiCaprios won't be remembered when they are old people. My son, for instance, says that none of his friends knew who, know who John Wayne is. Okay? Do not know who John Wayne is. Cary Grant. Charlton Heston. All of these people may not have been forgotten in their lifetime, but were forgotten shortly after. Do the youth of this century remember any politician of the last century? And that sounds like a long time ago. Okay, 22 years ago. Does anybody remember, uh, any of the youth remember... Maybe they remember Bill Clinton, probably for the wrong reasons. They may remember Ronald Reagan, but Harry Truman, oh, come on, give me a break, okay? Winston Churchill, the most essential man I've heard it described of the 20th century, the one man the world needed, virtually unknown today. Every century has had its indispensable people. People whose fame they thought, and the people of their time thought, would never die. 
So, name me one from the 6th century AD. Just one. Give it to me. Because there were hundreds, maybe thousands, of indispensable people whose fame would never die. And so it goes all the way back to the Assyrians and the Akkadians we study in, in Genesis and the Sumerians and the Egyptians, all their famous indispensable people, tyrants and philosophers, merchants and mystics. I've forgotten, in the Egyptian case, in the literal sense of time. I mean, they're forgotten. These people are unknown. That brings us to our study of these last verses of Acts 19 today because we're going to be discussing a little bit of immortality and mortality. To bring you up to date, I'll read last week's uh, six verses. Paul has been very successful in Ephesus at this point. So many people are turning away from the pagan gods to Christianity that it is hurting the economy of Ephesus, which was based on the temple worship of the goddess Artemis. And they, uh, the head of the silversmith union, uh, union guild, actually, made shrines to sell to tourists. And I, I love the fact, and I've said it before, that there were organized tours of these places. Uh, even 2,000 years ago, there were organized tour groups coming to places like Ephesus. And these silversmiths were selling these silver shrines of Artemis. And it's cutting into his business. And this is Demetrius talking. He says, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that goods made with hands, that gods made with hands, are not gods, which just happened to be in the call to worship today, talking about gods made with hands. They don't hear, they don't smell, they don't taste, they don't walk, they don't talk, they don't see. Anyways, turn them away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, which were the rulers of Ephesus, even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So today we're going to finish up this scene, go to the end of uh, uh, 
Acts 19, verses 35 through 41. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So looking at verse 35, we read, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, the town clerk does not seem like an impressive title, but it was a more important job than even what we know of as a mayor of the city. They say that uh, Ephesus was the largest, richest uh, city, most important city in Asia Minor. The town clerk's job was more like a city administrator today. Among his tasks was um, he was the registrar. I, they just say registrar, probably of the citizens of the town. He was the keeper of records. He was the hall of records, all in himself. He was the accountant for the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis was the center of the economy, basically the central bank of the city of Ephesus. So, being the accountant of the temple's funds uh, was quite, quite a responsibility. And beyond these, the town clerk was also, now remember this, the local liaison to the Roman provincial administration, okay? Ephesus was a free city in Asia Minor. The Romans were allowing self-rule to these people, but there was a provincial Roman government, and he was the liaison to that. As such, as the liaison, as a leading citizen of Ephesus, any disturbance of the peace, of the Pax Romana, that the Romans valued above anything else, and they really did, would be laid at the feet of this town, town clerk. For this reason, he intervened and quieted the crowd. So he said, men of Ephesus, this is verse uh, 35, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? The word temple keeper here is literally um, temple sweeper. Okay, it was, it was keeping, was sweeping, you know, you're, you're sprucing things up. The city was in charge of keeping the temple in a state that would keep attracting the tourists and those tourist dollars from all over the Roman Empire. As such, it was a term of honor 
to be called a temple sweeper uh, or the city to be called that. It sounds a little pedestrian to us, but uh, it was a term of honor uh, when applied to the whole city. So the entire city is the keeper of the temple and also it reads, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. The sacred stone that fell from the sky, as I explained last week, was a blob of a meteor that, that struck the ground, was found, and it vaguely resembled a multi-breasted woman. When I say vaguely, trust me, it was only vague, but it had fallen from the sky and meteorites were prized throughout the Roman Empire. The biblical scholar John Polhill notes, meteorites were often associated with the worship of the mother goddess Artemis. The most famous of these was the sacred stone taken from Piscinus to Rome in 204 BC. A meteorite also seems to have been associated with the cult of the Taurian Artemis. Although there is no evidence beyond this text for such a sacred stone being connected with Ephesus, the Ephesus cult, it is altogether likely that one existed given this common association of the mother goddess with a stone from heaven. And that's what they thought they had here, a, a sign, a stone from heaven representing the goddess Artemis. As F.F. F. Bruce points out, this image of Artemis was not the workmanship of mortal hands, but had in their eyes fallen from the skies, from Zeus. The town clerk goes on in verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. His point amounts to, everyone throughout the empire knows and worships Artemis, there is no denying anything about either Artemis or the temple, so don't fly off the handle and cause trouble upon us. Verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. This warning from the town clerk in Ephesus echoes that of Gamaliel before the Sanhedrin back in chapter 5 of Acts where Peter defended the apostles and himself for unlawfully preaching about Jesus and so when Peter then preaching the gospel to his accusers in the Sanhedrin which shows a lot of brass uh, to be hauled before them and then preach Jesus to them the Sanhedrin was enraged to the point of murder only have, uh, to have Gamaliel intervene back in Acts 5, verses 34 through 49, which reads, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, just as this town clerk is saying about the, um, the traveling companions of Paul. He says, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census 
and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. The town clerk pointed out to the silversmiths that the Christians had not been sacrilegious. They had not blasphemed Artemis, even during our teaching about Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, throughout history, Jews had always interpreted Exodus 22:28. And when I read it, I said, and I read it in all the versions available that I can get my hands on in Christian Bibles, which says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And I thought, how do the Jews have this wrong? Well, the Tanakh has a small letter, gods. So does the King James Version Bible, by the way. Every other version has a large God because the word used for God here is Elohim, God's per one of God's personal names. But Elohim is plural, means God, but it's plural, and the Jews have always taken that to mean do not revile gods, meaning pagan gods. Are they correct in this? I don't know. Okay, we've, we've often had uh, discussions, and we just had discussions last week in our uh, Genesis study about the plural gods. Uh, let us make man in our image, or let us go down and see the city they have built in Babel. That is the same word that we're talking about here. So this, as you, this, you shall not revile gods, little g plural, for that reason, both Jews and these early Christians took this verse as a warning from God in their dealings with the Gentile peoples, the Gentile nations, and left the pagan gods alone. In fact, as we've been studying here in Acts, we have seen that elsewhere it says, until now I have left the nations, which meant the Gentile nations, alone, but now... Revelation is coming to them through the preaching of Paul. So, Jews and Christians had left the pagan gods alone, and therefore, the Christians did in Ephesus and were not guilty of blaspheming or of uh, sacrilegious activity towards the goddess Artemis. In verse 38, the town clerk further tells the assembled mob, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils leaving, let them bring charges against one another. Let, let's just go on a, a lawsuit tear here. The Christians can sue you, you can sue the Christians. When he says that the, uh, the courts are open, uh, literally that is... There are market days because the courts were held in public in the market. And the word here for the courts are open is there are market days and there are pro-councils 
which are the men who would hear your case. There was actually not courts, there was one, and there were not pro-councils, there was one. This is said for a fact that the, there are courts and there are pro-councils to hear these things. He suggests that should Demetrius and the Silver Guild bring charges, uh, they might be facing charges themselves. Verse 38 says, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Besides the courts, there were assemblies as many as three times a month where the, the leaders of Ephesus would come together to hear disputes. You could wait for that. If you didn't want to go to the pro-council, you could go to the assembly. And then the town clerk gives a final warning about further disturbances on the part of Demetrius and his backers. Verse 40 says, For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Demetri uh, the town clerk is saying the Christians aren't at fault here. We're at fault. They're innocent. And we might be charged with rioting. Uh, the city itself was thus in jeopardy of the seditious charge of disturbing the peace. This was treason against Rome. As I said, Rome takes keeping the peace above everything else. The entire reason that Pontius Pilate allowed Jesus to be crucified, who Pontius Pilate said two or three times, I forget which, that he was an innocent man, he allowed the, he allowed the crucifixion of Jesus to keep the peace. The Jews were so rambunctious in Judaism, the whole story of the Roman occupation of Israel. Israel is, we all know how tiny Israel is. They had, they had <coughs> provinces, they had conquered provinces all over the world. Israel was a speck and caused them more trouble than all of the other provinces combined because the Jews would not accept the rule. They had a different God. They wanted to be ruled by that God, and they were causing the Romans more trouble than anybody else. And when they demanded Jesus, and Pontius Pilate wants to release him, and then gives them the choice, we all know the story, they, they demanded the uh, robber called Barabbas, and Pontius Pilate basically said, I wash my hands of this. Go ahead, we'll have him killed for you. Because I'm, we're not going to sit here and say that the Jews put him to death. The Jews wanted him put to death. Pontius Pilate allowed them to choose who to save. And the Romans then put Jesus to death to keep the peace. And that's what we're looking at here. When, when Paul is finally, we believe, executed in Rome, he was not crucified. The reason is, he was a Roman citizen, okay? He could not be crucified. Peter was crucified. Traditionally on the same day that, uh, that uh, Paul was decapitated. Here in Ephesus, 
if they are charged with treason and the Romans come in, well, if you're a citizen, you won't be crucified. But if you're not, you will be. Okay, and if you're a citizen, <laughs> that doesn't mean you're off. That means you get to be beheaded instead of crucified. So what they are facing in Ephesus here, if they are charged with treason, is possibly a large percentage of the worship of Artemis being crucified outside the city gates and the rest being decapitated. And this is what the town clerk is warning them about when he says that they might be guilty of causing a riot. It is a death penalty offense. The danger was real and the verdict could be fatal for all involved, including the town clerk. The episode concludes with verse 41. And he, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Really, nothing more needed to be said. The point was made. They had to shape up. Not only could everybody be executed, but they, Ephesus was a free self-rule city. They could go back under Roman rule, which was not anything anybody really desired. So keeping the peace to this town clerk was more important than anything he was doing. We've completed the subject, the uh, verses for today, but the town clerk was right on everything he said except one thing, that everyone in the Roman Empire would continue in their worship of Artemis, despite what Christians such as Paul or Gaius or Aristarchus were teaching in his commentary on Acts. And the reason, when I quote John MacArthur, I don't do this with everybody else, John MacArthur's sentences, if I quote them, these are from a sermon, okay? Otherwise, the ideas are fair game for us to grab, but when I say John MacArthur, it's not because I'm placing him above every other preacher, though I could be tempted. Um, it's because they're from a sermon, and if I'm quoting him directly, I do mention that. But anyway, John MacArthur, in his commentary on Acts, um, points out that the town clerk believed that nothing that Christian evangelists could say could possibly affect the worship of their great god, Artemis of the Ephesians, what they chant and call out. But in their own lifetimes, in these townsfolks' own lifetimes, their immortal gods would fall out of favor for the one true God, Jesus Christ. They would not be worshipped any longer. And it was not the preaching by itself that brought about the change. I would like to say that, you know, pre preachers are responsible for all of the evangelism that goes on in the church and that if you're a Christian here, it's because of me. You know, no. In, in Ephesus, People were leaving because they saw the lives of the Christians, of how they loved one another, took care of one another. The community they built up was luring, and luring sounds terrible, doesn't it? Was luring the pagans away from their pagan gods, and that was what was happening. Along with this preaching came repentance 
and an obvious change of lifestyle among the new Christians that was so obvious and revolutionary that what the silversmiths saw as cutting into their profits became a wholesale turning away from the old gods to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The town clerk of Ephesus believed it impossible that Artemis could cease to be worshipped. 2,000 years later, you might have remembered that the Romans and the Greeks had a total of 2,032 gods that they worshipped. 2,000 years later, can you, you wouldn't have remembered Ephesus, uh, Artemis. If I hadn't mentioned it, you'd remember Zeus and Poseidon, right? How many of the Greek gods can you name 2,000 years later? They're gone. And they're not worshipped. The only reason we know about them is because of Greek myths and the study of Greek literature and Roman literature. We know nothing of the other 2,030 gods. The gods worshipped for millenniums fell to the effect of simple Christians leading authentic Christian lives. But even, we know that those so-called gods were not immortal. They weren't immortal, though they were worshipped. And they passed from human memory. So what chance does man have in our quest for some small measure of immortality for ourselves. It's impossible, isn't it? I mean, the most famous people in the world, the gods of ancient times, are forgotten. It's impossible for us to have some sort of immortality, isn't it? In John 5.24, Jesus says... Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, that's not the immortality that's being talked about with the gods, but it's something better. Jesus says we have eternal life. It's present tense. He does not say that those who hear my word will have eternal life. And this is something I have preached before. Some of you haven't. No, Jesus says those who believe have eternal life in his hearing. Those people are living their eternal life. John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, I, I wonder, because I do believe that Christians are going from life to life everlasting. And I wonder if we will even know when we've crossed that threshold. Okay? The Apostle Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no purgatory. There's no waiting. There's no soul sleep. Will we even know when we die? Or do we wake up in the presence of the Lord and not even wake up? Are we just in the presence of the Lord? That is firmly what I believe. We'll close with Jesus. 
Jesus' words in John 6, 28 through 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him, him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will rise, raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Immortality belongs only to the true God of the universe, the Trinity of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. As the hymn that we sang had it, immortal, invisible, God only wise. It's all the immortality that we need is to live in the presence of God forever. Let's close in prayer.